is the book of Philippians about? Does anyone know what Paul's letter to the Philippians is about? Okay, humility. Yeah. It's about joy, sure. To know Christ. But what's the point? What's the main theme? He's driving through the whole epistle. This is kind of a trick question here on Sunday morning. It's fellowship in the ministry of the gospel. (laughs) Use your tools, people. Use your tools. (laughs) We're screening for for applicants. (laughs) It's fellowship in the ministry of the gospel. That's the point. That's the theme. That's the ultimate focus or topic of Paul's letter to the Philippians. There's a lot going on in Philippians. Last time we were together, which was too long ago, beloved, I was able to conclude with you chapter 2 and the sending of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus carried the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians in prison in Rome. He carried it back to Paul after he had carried the gift and their correspondence to Paul. So the, the, the messenger, I believe, is the pastor of the, the people in Philippi. He is at least one of their leaders. He has uh, been with Paul, and we read that he was sick almost to the point of death, but God spared him. And uh, so you're to hold him in high esteem. Let's see here. Verse 27. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I've sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him. This is Epaphroditus. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. And that doesn't mean he's criticizing them. Deficient in your service to me is a literal rendering of you provided my needs. And it was, that's our, that's our relationship. I'll preach and you supply the needs, the, the logistical needs, and I'm presenting the word and you're supplying the logistics. And so do you hear fellowship in the ministry of the gospel? Now he's just talking about the sending of Epaphroditus back to them with this letter. Epaphroditus, having carried it, is probably reading it. And it's think about the historical moment here. The first time Philippians was read to people in Philippi, in Macedonia, <clears throat> the person who he's talking about is probably reading it aloud to them. He's blushing as he reads about himself. Wouldn't that have been neat? Now, back then, you didn't know what you're hearing when you're hearing Philippians as a Philippian. You didn't know what this letter would mean to the world 2,000 years later, for 2,000 years. You're just sitting there in your assembly hearing this man tell you 
we'll actually read about himself, his citation. <laughs> but this is all about the fellowship of the ministry of the gospel. And so we get into chapter three after the sending of Timothy and Epaphroditus, his little housekeeping discussion that he brings. He says, what remains in Philippians three? Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again is no trouble for me and it's a safeguard to you. Literally, taloipon is the leftover, the remnant, the remainder. Seven goes into ten, one time, remainder three. The, what's left? That's what this phrase means and they've smoothed it out in my English here and finally, my brethren. They just say finally, but I want to bring this out. What remains? Here's what's left for me in my discussion. And so I've tried to bring it a little more literally. Here's what remains. Rejoice in the Lord. This is the point. It's a turning point in the letter where I finished sort of some housekeeping discussions about people and, and sendings and, and plans. And now I'm going to start haranguing you with responsibilities. He's already given them many commands in Philippians. Have this thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Even though he exists in the form of God, the very essence of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be seized and held to, but he emptied himself by becoming obedient. Let me paraphrase, to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. For this reason also, he was highly exalted and given a name, a name above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of the Father. This is the thinking you're supposed to have in yourselves, that you humble yourself before God all the way to whatever expectation he has in his mission for you so that he will exalt you at the proper time. It's 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. He's given us lots of commands. And lots of theology in those commands. Here's what remains, my brethren. Rejoice in the Lord to write the same thing to you for me is no trouble, but it is a safeguard for you. All right. What has proceeded? He said, here's what remains. What I'm going to say from now on in Philippians is to rejoice. But what has come before? Do you remember? Because I asked you what Philippians is about. And we've been out of town and in town and out of town. So do you know what Philippians is? Well, it's the ministry of the gospel, right? Let's review real quick. What has proceeded? If what remains is to rejoice, then what has proceeded? Well, we start with the greetings from Paul and God's grace and peace to you from God, our father. And then he's grateful to the, to God for them. And that's verses uh, three through six of chapter one. He's grateful to them because of their fellowship in the ministry of the gospel. The point of the letter to the Philippians verse six, uh, five and six, probably being the theme verse of the epistle. And then if you missed it, he feels very strongly toward them. And it's a very personal relationship that is not a functional mechanical relationship. It is a personal relationship. And like all personal relationships, there are mechanics involved that deal with communication. 
personal interaction. But it's how he feels toward them, very emphatic. And I, I sometimes, you impersonal New Englanders, listen to this. It's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You are partakers of grace with me for God is my witness. How I long for you all with the splonk known of Christ Jesus. I am stuck in Rome and I want to be with you because I'm so grateful to God for you. And that makes me want to co-locate with you. This is the attitude, the emotions of Paul. Well, where, where'd you get emotions? I've been accused of being emotional. I think emotions are part of life. It's the spice of life. I like the whole meal at Thanksgiving. Encourage you to try to have one this year, despite what the government might propose. See, in our founding, the government said, celebrate Thanksgiving this year. They're going to try to say not to. Anyway, uh, I think you serve the cranberries and the stuffing and all the stuff at Thanksgiving. And one of the blessings of life is how you feel. Good, awesome feelings in the Bible are called joy. And horrible, bad feelings are, include sorrow, right? And splonknon intestines is the word Paul uses here for what he has toward them. It's a physical word with a metaphorical sense that means your feelings. So I got to bring that out sometimes because people think, people tend to think Paul is, well, I like Paul because it's orderly and uh, logical in its reasoning. And so it isn't hyper-emotional. Fine. It's not hyper-emotional. It puts the, it puts the pumpkin pie right where it goes, but it's there. If you don't like pumpkin pie, then put whatever one you like. In verses 9 through 11, he then moves from thanksgiving and how he feels and his motivations in how he feels toward them to his prayer for them. What does Paul pray for the Philippians? Do you know that without looking? I don't. But I, I mean, I can summarize it, but that's because I've been studying it. But do you, do you know what Paul prays for people everywhere in the New Testament? Spiritual growth and ministry effectiveness. Spiritual growth, and it's a radical encounter with God's word that has the spiritual impact of a mature spiritual life with the necessary effect of how you're serving in your cut of the work. It's never apart from the work. I pray that your love may abound still more and more. Spiritual growth. What grows when we grow spiritually? Our capacity to love and the expression of that Christian, Christ-centered, selfless love. That it'll abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. That's spiritual growth through a radical encounter with the Word of God. So that you have God's knowledge that He's given you through His self-disclosure. So that what? So that you can have ministry effectiveness so that you can approve the things that are excellent. That means that you can reason, not from just quoting scripture, but having internalized scripture, you can apply it correctly to circumstances in order to be a sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, all the way to the judgment seat of Christ, that at the coming of Jesus with his judgment seat for you, for the church, you have the outcome that he wants you to have. Because you've been filled with the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of righteousness. And that's your ministry effectiveness, including their gift to Paul to support him in ministry, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. 
Paul's prayer. What else have we seen? Well, he gave his ministry report in chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, where he said, People have been preaching Christ because I'm imprisoned. Some are more bold to preach Christ because uh, my imprisonment encourages them that if I can suffer for the Lord, then they shouldn't be afraid to. Now, others hate me and are trying to oppress me and cause me more trouble in prison. So they're preaching Christ. And the good news in all of that in verse 18 is whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being preached. And in this, I rejoice. And so Paul's ministry report that the gospel is going forward despite his being stopped. They've got us surrounded, the poor bastards, they said in, um, in I believe in Bastogne <laughs> in World War II. Pardon the expression on Sunday morning. Oh no, Paul, he's locked down. Game over, man. Game over. We can't have the gospel go forward if there's nobody to encourage Paul except Timothy. We can't have the gospel go forward if Paul is imprisoned. He's going to say in this letter, the Praetorian Guard greets you. All of Caesar's household greets you. Everybody in the Praetorian Guard knows about the gospel now. <laughs> they, took, they stuck a hot coal in the middle of the... Of the Fuel depot. This, this thing is going to, this gospel ministry exploded when Paul got in prison this time in Rome. In verses 21 through 26 of chapter 1, you have um, the motto. The motto for the Christian life. For, for me to live is Christ, so to die is gain. And here's the way I think about life. If I'm going to live, I'm going to live for Christ. If I'm going to die, I'm going to go see Christ. Either way, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. And that's the way I think about my life. And I believe, however, that I will not die in this case. In verses 27 through 30, you start with the commands. Paul starts issuing directives only. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He actually says, live as a citizen. Polituo. Remember that word. That's in verse 27 where we have the first big command. Walk worthy of the gospel. You are a citizen of the coming eternal kingdom. You represent the king. You are an ambassador in that sense. So walk worthy of that high calling. And he uses the sense that Philipp, the Philippi is a Roman colony with Roman citizenship uh, privileges on citizens of Philippi. He uses that that historical theme to say, Hey, you think that Roman, I mean, think Rome, the city, the city, if you're, if you live in Philippi, then you have the same privileges as somebody who lives in Rome, the city, which is the hub of the empire. Great, high prestige. It's nothing. It's dung. He'll say in chapter three, compared to your citizenship, which is in heaven. And so you walk worthy of this gospel mission. And what I want to hear is that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. This epistle is about the ministry of the gospel, fellowship in the ministry of the gospel. That you are striving together for the faith of the gospel and no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but a salvation for you and that too from God. For to you it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. The privilege, 
the high calling of suffering for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the challenge to walk worthy of their calling. I think that what we've just done by emphasizing citizenship and the, the mission of the gospel is the most historically relevant thing I could talk about in American history right now. And the time in which we live in this crazy year of 2020 and this month of November, the most relevant thing I could discuss with you is what we just went over. Because the culture is sliding farther and farther from its moorings. The time in which you live, you're finding yourself less and less able to connect to the culture. Let me give you an example. Morality. The new morality is dogmatic. Forget, forget postmodernism and, and relativism. Everybody can think what they want. The new morality is if you don't walk the line of our new morality, including transgender rights for eight-year-olds that decide they want operations and stuff, according to our new, uh, apparently coming in administration. The new morality is staggeringly immoral. And how you connect as, as, a, as a person in this culture to this culture is getting more and more complicated. And we who are simple and don't want to be real complicated want to just say one of two things. Join them or cut them off and forget it. Just set it adrift or jump on the boat. Pick one. And the truth is your citizenship is in heaven. You are not supposed to be stained by this world and the culture that you live in and every culture in the world has been stained by Satan's system of deceptions. And you and I are responsible to be in this world and not of it and never say that sin is not sin and never say that righteousness is sin and always tell the truth regardless of what the popular morality of the culture says. Because your citizenship is in heaven. So in a way, you let it all go, cut, cut loose. But in another sense, you stay engaged because your citizenship is in heaven and you don't belong to this culture. You communicate in it. You recognize the benefits, the good things and the deceptive things that Satan has imported into it. And you, you tell the truth. Now, I'm talking about relevance. Going back to Philippians 1, I didn't mean to, I didn't plan on it. This is how David Roseland works and thinks. I don't think, what do they really need to hear from me? Generally don't do that. I've, I've seen five or six of the same type of sin in the last two weeks by different people. I'm going to preach on that sin. I was taught to do that in preaching class. I'm not going to name the professor. My battle buddy in preaching class and I, when we heard that, that you're supposed to be lasering your church people with their sins. We both sort of looked at each other at the same time and went, kind of spit seed on that one. Because I don't know what your sins are. I don't. It's not my call. It's not my job. I know what God's word says. And here's what I'm trying to show you. The most relevant thing I could teach you is something that I just wanted to go, based on what he says in 3.1, I wanted to go back and make sure we had kind of the summary because we've been out of town and here it is, that thought again, that citizenship in heaven calls me to ministry on earth in the gospel as the focus of my life. As a, if you're a Christian, that's what Christianity is. That's the gig. That's, that's the deal. 
if you, if you hang on to something that's less than that or, or, or d d dilutes that, like, well, no, it's about the word. Okay, you can't be on mission without saturation with the word, but the saturation of the word is toward the mission, toward you being mature to function in the work God has called you to. See, we're, we're on a mission. And Christians, we, with our hearts knit together in love, may be a fishing net the Lord uses to catch a couple of New England fish. He may do that with us. I think he has. Boy, I'd like to see a lot more New England fish along with the Lord to let us let the net down on the other side of the boat and break the nets and have to bring more boats in and get all the fish. Doesn't seem to be the season that we're in here in balmy New England. It's not the season we're in in this country. It's a post-Christian culture. But what I'm trying to say is that your, your relevant question, there's nothing more relevant than the word of God. And God has a spiritual life for you and he wants you in his word. And if you'll internalize it, if you'll refresh these thoughts, he meets you right where you are every day. Every day you pay attention to what he said, he meets you right where you are. So we are to walk worthy. And that word walk or uh, conduct yourself in verse 27 is to live appropriately as a citizen. In chapter two, verses one through 13, you have that great command to think like Jesus thought and thinks. Think like he thought when he took on flesh and went to the cross and now is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory, anticipating ruling over this coming kingdom, the first thousand years of which will be an interesting period that we have theologically called the millennium, but will continue after that into the new heavens and new earth forever and ever and ever and ever. And of the increase of his kingdom of glory, there will never be any end forever and ever. This is your destiny and this is Jesus pattern and you are brought in to the pattern. So if you're positionally in Christ by faith in Christ, then you need experientially to adopt his thinking because that's what go, these, these things go together. There is no walking in the pattern of Jesus without the attitude of the Lord Jesus. And it's all about the thinking. So this church that's getting it right is commanded to think as the Lord Jesus thinks. And the thought, as someone said, is humility before God. Here is not what humility means. It doesn't mean I am bad. You haven't arrived at humility yet. I'm worthless and I just am so stupid and you self-talk to yourself. Bad talking. That's not humility. That's arrogance. That's saying something other than what God says. Don't give yourself a pass to slip into that kind of pathological arrogance. That's a self-destructive thing to do to yourself self-destructive thing to do to yourself that's redundant and repeats and says the same thing twice humility doesn't say without god and anything he said i'm going to say what i want to say about me that's arrogance the arrogance the subtle arrogance is we have not listened to what god said and we haven't said father you have your say i'll adopt it and then i'll think what you want me to think that's humility Humility says, I am what God says I am. And so what's the truth? You're a sinner born in the flesh with the same sin nature problem that Adam started us with when he first disobeyed God. You're born a sinner. You're still a sinner. It's true. It's true. And you know what you're supposed to do with your sin? You're supposed to hate it. Your sins are why Jesus died on the cross. And the urge to sin 
is not something anyone else is responsible for. You are stained with this sense, this urge to sin. It's true. You're a sinner. But that's not all you are. You are made in God's image. You can say, well, that's in Genesis chapter 1, Pastor. The making God's image is stated in Genesis 1, but the fall happens in Genesis 3. So you really can't say we're God's image. And my advice to you is that don't keep, don't speak about this until you've read through Genesis 9. Because if you're arguing with me from Genesis 3, which doesn't mention God's image bearers, then... That's theological reasoning and congratulations, but it's errant because in Genesis nine, God says that mankind is bearing God's image. The fallen, broken, sinful man that is after the flood is still God's image bearer. We're broken, we're sinners, but we bear God's image. And that means that you have personal, intrinsic, inherent value that you can't even fully assess because you don't know really what it means for God to be God. You've got a sense of it from his revelation, but God's essence is somehow reflected in your design. And that's intrinsic value. Humility doesn't say I'm nothing or I'm awful or I'm, it says I'm a sinner, but I'm also one who bears God's image and I've been made for him. Humility says, furthermore, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that I am in Christ. My identity is now his identity and I share his destiny. And so humility is now to say, I am marked out for eternal greatness only because of who and what the Lord Jesus Christ is. Humility only says, I am what God says I am. And we don't become arrogant about our great position in Christ. That's absurd. But we humble ourselves enough to hear God's word tell us who we are. Humility in the Bible is directed always toward God. It's not undirected. It's not just a general sense of, hmm, you know, peace with the universe. It is directed toward God with the same words that the Lord Jesus said a number of times. Not my will, but your will be done. That's humility. So we adopt the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, and it, it saves us from when God exalts you. Affluenza, where you start feeling guilty for being promoted. Well, I don't deserve it. Right. Nobody does. And the people that think they deserve whatever they have because they're, you know, like, well, I worked hard with the intelligence and the work ethic that God allowed you to have. Right? We should all be grateful all the time for all of God's grace. I did this with my own hands. Where'd you get your hands? Did you breathe oxygen? So let's, let's put gratitude where it goes. But see, that's the Christian approach. That's the view of God as there. In 2.14 through 18, he commands that we join him in his walk. You too, I urge, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me is the conclusion of this section. But I love verse 14. We get little stenciled, um, uh, de- uh, easy pull, easy peel decals. You can take them off it easy. We like to put those on the wall in our house, decorate them with the word of God. Uh, it, 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 some people may think it's cheesy, but it's, it's really 
I love it. I love seeing God's word. And it, you can pull it down easy, but temporary, you know, tattoo on the wall of God's word. Do all things without grumbling or, or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. But, but I do all things. That's the greatest universal ever. Isn't there ever a time that I can grumble or dispute? Nope. All things without grumbling or disputing. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> but if you, but I get, it doesn't matter because what you're going to say includes all things, no grumbling or disputing. And there's a consequence as we've seen recently so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Philippians is about the ministry of the gospel. It's fellowship in the ministry of the gospel. And this is one of our honor code things. We ministers of the gospel, all of us, we happy few, we band of brothers and sisters, brethren and sisterin, we're supposed to be on mission and we're supposed to, with our mission, be careful about what we say. So we don't complain because ultimately we're saying something about God. Let me do another universal. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. What things work together for good? All things. Now, my New American Standard translates Romans 8, 28. And, um, and we know that God causes all things to work. Well, God works all things together, something like that. Actually, the best manuscript is that all things work together for good. And the reason that is true is because God is doing it. He's in charge of the universals. So if he's working all things together for good, for me, those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose, and I am grumbling and complaining about something, you see the problem? The, the, the union of sets here, the, the intersection of the two sets is the all things. Don't grumble and complain ever because always God is working this situation together for good. It's a, it's a mar on your witness. It's the denial of the gospel. Instead, we're holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, Paul will have reason and glory because I do not run in vain or toil in vain. When the judgment seat of Christ is set up and he evaluates you Philippians uh, for your Christian performance and your fruit, and the only fruit inspection that matters is the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. When he does this, I will say I, I was successful. I won't have run in vain because you will get your rewards. Remember the fellowship of the ministry of the gospel takes us to the judgment seat of Christ. And in verses 19 through 30 of chapter two, we have the sendings. I'm going to send Timothy to you uh, because I have no one else that I can send to go basically kind of do a Bible conference. And I've sent Epaphroditus beforehand with this letter. So Philippians will be read to them by Epaphroditus. And then later, Timothy will come. And then later on, Paul will come. And so you've got a, a pretty good calendar that the Lord provides of, uh, of upcoming specials from uh, God's communicators, Epaphroditus and Timothy and eventually Paul. Well, that's what has come before us in Philippians, in this epistle on the ministry of the gospel. Now Paul is going to take us to the beware. After telling you to re, let's see, he says, 
Here's what remains. Rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you for me is no trouble, but to you a safeguard. Um, what kind of word is rejoice? Is it an adjective or an adverb or a noun or a pronoun or a verb? Rejoice. Listen how carefully. I will usually give the answer at the end. It's a verb. <laughs> a verb. What kind of verb is it? Is it a question interrogative? Is it a declarative or is it an imperative command verb? It's an imperative. See, you're listening for the end, right? It's the imperative. It's the command. It's in red. I always put the commands in red lately. It's just a, we're never going to print a Bible. It's got the Roseland Bible. The, the commands are in red. That's a good idea. Anyway, uh, do all things without grumbling, complaining. Here, rejoice. It's the alternative. It's the opposite side. It's the other, other side of the coin. Rejoice in the Lord. What am I going to say about this in terms of anthropology and psychology? Well, you can't help what you feel like. You can't, the hot wants what the hot wants. You can't just choose to rejoice. Well, that's Satan talking because you can, because Paul says you must. You're now on notice with a command to rejoice in the Lord. And that's the key. The Lord is always there. The cross is always true. The resurrection is always powerful. And so you are always in Christ. And so you always have a reason to rejoice. Now, what's wrong with you and me? Why are we not always rejoicing in Christ? Why don't we think this way? Because we're looking somewhere else. Because our attention slips and we're worried about the thing, whatever the thing is. And you know what I mean when I say the thing. I'm talking about that thing that you, if you, if you go there in your mind, that's the last thing you'll hear from me because you're thinking about that now. The thing. Don't think about the thing. The thing is still there. It's still there. And it's like a knife sticking out of your back and you can't get to it, but there's nothing else you can think about. The truth is the Lord is more powerful than the thing or the person or the hardship or whatever it is. And I'm talking stack anything you want against the truth, the eternal truth of the cross and resurrection and ascension and session of Jesus Christ and your position in him. Stack anything against in your temporal hardship. And I'm talking about the worst things against the eternal promises of God. And you can see that Jesus wins. But... You may not be very strong in your perspective in the moment on these things. These are all revelation of God things. They're all saturation with the word of Christ kind of things. These are things that you have to be thinking about, reflecting on. They have to be fresh in your mind. You can't be coasting along out of gas. Engines dead, just barely gliding Friday night, trying to get to Sunday with no word of God since last Sunday. And you're going you're gonna to go into some sort of massive battle. You're, you're, you're dead. Now, it's, it's a da daily radical engagement with the word that gives you this perspective so that you can rejoice in the Lord. I'm trying to give you very simple mechanics here. If you will make your day about God's word and getting it and focusing on God so you'll know him. I'm not talking about knowing about God. I'm talking about going after God and his word to know him. You could start by reading Philippians. And, and you know you're done because you have it memorized and you just quote Philippians, right? Start with, with something that you understand and read it again. But the more you do this, the more you'll have the capacity to rejoice in the Lord because it's about the Lord. I'm not talking about pulling a rabbit out of a hat. I'm not talking about 
something that, that is, a, is a nice thought, Pastor, that you can't really access. This is real, but it's only real to those who can actually grab hold of the things of God from his word and reflect on them. Rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you for me is no trouble, but to you a safeguard. Now, we are on a mission and we want to beware. In verses two through seven, the greatest problem in the first century, in the mission of the gospel for the apostle Paul, the middle of the first century, the greatest problem is what he always draws our attention to. It's the Galatian problem. It's the attack on the gospel from those outside who claim to be inside. It's wolves in sheep's clothing. He's going to call them here dogs. And they have a specific message and it is specifically powerful to draw away the new believers with their old ideas. There are lots of problems in every culture. There are lots of things that you can try that will take you off the mark. They will take you down the wrong path. There, there's one narrow path and there's lots of highways branching off the narrow path that are the wrong choices. There are lots of things Paul could bring up about the culture uh, the Philippians live in. But there's a specific problem that people of the book represent. Some people, some offshoot of the people of the book represent that he addresses in almost every letter. And it's the reason for the epistle to the Galatians. And here's the big risk. The big danger was people like him that were very well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, who mixed the gospel of Jesus Christ with the ritual for covenant Israel. And they mixed it as a prerequisite or requirement for gospel uh, participation. What they'd say is, yeah, yeah, Jesus. But Jesus is a Jew. It's true. We're very pro-Israel. We honor Abraham because those who dishonor him will be cursed. And we believe in Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic covenant. I have a lot more to say about that. But, but these people are coming behind Paul. They call them Judaizers. They come behind the apostle Paul and they say, yes, 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 yes. Oh, yes, Yeshua. Mm. But you've been told incorrectly just a little bit by Paul. I mean, everything he said was great except for the whole only Jesus thing because what you failed to do gentlemen is have your surgery and we're gonna need you because we just love you and we love Jesus we're gonna need you to join Israel and become truly saved by a little piece of surgery a little bit of surgery Paul says that that isn't the only problem in Galatians. It's not, not the only problem that they've said the gospel is faith in Christ plus any work, any ritual work, any water dedication or any physical mutilation. Anything you might do that's a work besides faith in Christ is a different gospel in Galatians 1. But that's not the only problem. They have also added rituals in Israel to the spiritual life of the believer. And that's why Paul says Galatians in chapter three, have you, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected, matured, sanctified by the flesh? 
Is there any value in the rituals of Israel to your spiritual sanctification? Or is it by grace through faith at every turn? That's the Judaizers. They're alive and well today. And Paul has a problem with them. He calls them the dogs. Beware the evil workers. Beware the dogs. Same category. Beware the mutilation. That's the actual Greek there. And it's been translated the false circumcision because that's what he means by mutilation. It doesn't mean that it was a botched surgery. It means that what they think that surgery is, is now at a mutilation of human, of the human being. Instead of it being the dedication for Israel, according to the Abrahamic covenant, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant that God gave to designate Israel and those in that covenant. Instead of it being that, it became something that God never intended it for, be, for it to be as in terms of something to, uh, to save you. And so those who say you must be are promoting mutilation. And that's, this is, again, most clearly presented in Galatians. For we are the circumcision. Peritome, we are the circumcision. The ones who by the Spirit are, of God are serving we are the people dedicated to the Lord is what he's saying. Now, Paul is physically Abrahamic covenant circumcised, but he's talking about the spiritual life of the believer. And we, not the dogs, not the false workers, we are the ones that are telling you what the spiritual life is. We are serving by God's spirit, not by Rabbi so-and-so's scalpel. Who by the spirit of God are serving, even those who are boasting in Christ Jesus. What is the boast of the Judaizer, of the dog, of the mutilation? What's their boast in their surgery? And so you've lost the point. And what's the application here, Christians? Well, I'm not struggling with this one, Pastor Dave. You know, save this one for somebody that's really working through this. I've, I've got people that are really confused about these things. Really confused. Stay off of YouTube. We will teach you Hebrew at Schaefer Theological Seminary. This is the seminary in your church. You can take Hebrew classes for free. Judaica is full of crazy. And most of it lives on YouTube. But here's, here's what you need to do. You need to boast in Jesus. That is your defense. That's your protection. Against arrogance, against false claims against like, Paul proves his apostleship. And this is the apostle Christian life of Paul. He's a Christian. He's coming from Christ. Our only boast is in Jesus. Now this sets up what he's doing here in verse three is going to set up what he does through the meat part of chapter three, the big application section, which stay tuned. We're going to work through next hour. Where he's going to say everything that you could, could put on my resume that makes me a player, it's all rubbish. It's all waste. It's all loss. Because the only thing about me that really matters is Jesus Christ. The only boast I have is Jesus Christ. Luther said it in the English translation, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, his truth abideth still. I am going to let everything go and hang on to Jesus Christ only. That's where Paul takes these maturing Philippians.
But he tells them to be careful of these people. You can tell that they're, that they're false teachers because they're going to glory in something other than Jesus Christ. We're the ones boasting in Christ Jesus. Indeed, we are those who have put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. I watch the American political process every single day. I watch it avidly. I watch it closely. I am a fan of the founding. I like the idea of individual liberty, and I don't like the idea of selling it out because of some sort of deception that my children or our people are being led by children. I, I, I don't like what I see, but I do watch the process closely. But you know, when things go my way politically, I never think, we're saved. I never think, I never feel, oh, finally, say it, salve. I never think that. And when they don't go my way, I never think, all is lost. You know, we're, we're ruined. You know, we're, we're no more. I never think that way. I always think, maybe when things go well, I think maybe the Lord's given us a little bit of a reprieve and we can, we can take a breath. And when things don't go well, and we start to look like we're going to make all kinds of evil, horrible decisions like the Paris Climate Accords and all the things that this new administration is saying is going to do. All these evil, 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 evil things that they're going to, going to sell you out. And, and uh, <laughs> um, when I, th I don't think we're lost, I think it's probably going to hurt a little bit. That's how I think, okay? But I know some of you are more sensitive about these things and you're more either exultant or you're more uh, horrified depending on how things go. And I think that that's a very dangerous position to put yourself in. In fact, it's a curse. I'm not saying any of you are cursed. I'm saying that we are all cursed if we don't listen to what Jeremiah says, that the Lord says. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. Cursed is the, let me say it literally, the gibor, the young man who trusts in Adam, in mankind, who makes flesh his arm. Metaphor for strength. Who makes flesh his strength. That is a curse to you because it is the one whose heart turns away from the Lord. I can tell you the historical circumstance of Jeremiah 17, five, if you want, we can go over all that and why he said it to the, to them and the day he said it. But if you understand the words I'm saying, they are very relevant to you right now. Such a person will be like a bush tamarisk probably in the desert he'll not even see when prosperity comes but he will live in stony waste in the wilderness a land of salt without inhabitant on the other hand blessed is the man who trusts in the lord and whose trust is the lord who trusts in the lord and because of that becomes stabilized and his trust his confidence is the lord jeremiah 17 7 for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream. Now notice the, the bush doesn't even know there's prosperity because he's out in the stony places. Listen to this. Your roots are sunk down by the stream and you won't fear when the test comes, when the heat comes, but your leaves will be green 
will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit even when adversity comes not prosperity when adversity comes your your roots are in the water you're going to you're going to bear fruit remember that Jeremiah 17 it's the same thought here they have put confidence in the flesh these dogs these evil workers and you and I will do that to our detriment there's a great application here for you and me remember Jeremiah 17:5 through 8 Really, verse 9 keeps going about what's wrong with people and their sin and stuff. Just keep, keep on reading. But In verse 4, although I might have confidence also in the flesh. So we're the, we're the real circumcision because we only boast in the Lord and our confidence is not in the flesh. But hey, all these rabbis that are going to come tell you they know the real thing, we've got scrolls. <laughs> Paul is... Paul could out rabbi all of them. And that's what he's going to say. I might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he should be confident in the flesh, I'm more circumcised on the eighth day, according to the scriptures. From the nation Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, all those left-handed slingers and judges, the mighty tribe of Benjamin. You know how bad Benjamin is? I mean, when you say I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, that's like saying I'm with the 82nd. (laughs) Or fifth group or whatever it was y'all were all involved in. Benjamin was the one tribe in Israel that took on the entire country. All the other 11 tribes and almost won. That's how bad, that's how tough Benjamin was. Saul, the first king of Israel is from the tribe of Benjamin, what's left of it. And he looks like a king. Saul of Tarsus, named after that king. They're proud of their heritage. We're of Benjamin. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, according to the standard of the law, a Pharisee. Meaning, I really believe it and I really teach it and I know it better than most people do. According to the standard of zeal, I am so zealous for the Mosaic law that I didn't just pray I got on my horse and rode to attack those that might be opposed to it in this nascent thing called Christianity. I'm a persecutor of the church. According to the righteousness which comes about by the law, blameless. What righteousness comes about by the law? Not God's righteousness. According to the standard that men have adopted, that they say we've built the hedge around the law, and if you stay outside the hedge, then you don't violate the law, even though they're all sinning all the time, like all of us. I am, I walk that line and I've been good at it and nobody can, can, can besmirch my record as a Pharisee. You're, these guys are pikers compared to Paul, compared to Saul of Tarsus, these Judaizers. But then verse seven is how we close. But whatever things were gained to me, these I've regarded worthless for Christ's sake. Whatever things were gained to me. I've regarded worthless for the sake of Christ. That's how you know you're dealing with a Christian apostle, someone sent from Jesus. All he has to offer is Jesus. Oh, but Paul, we've seen your resume. No. None of that matters. In fact, it's all loss.
Whatever things were gained to me, these I've regarded as worthless for the sake of Christ. This is time for leaven. It's time to get the leaven out. Think about it. Tell the truth. Look at yourself in the mirror of God's word and make the correction. What do you have to boast in that is not Jesus Christ? Seriously, do it. Don't miss the opportunity. Don't look in the word and see what kind of person you're going to walk away and be double-minded. Think about what you're, what you're hearing here. Paul is, he is modeling the repentance that we must constantly be enduring. And I mean, the change of mind from what am I looking at in myself? What am I confident in? What is my boast? What is the thing that gives me the edge? And the answer, the only answer that you ever really are supposed to have, I mean, ever is Christ. But I, 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 that tone, but I, I was pretty good at math, <laughs> whatever. This leads us to the gospel, doesn't it? Not only did we start with, I have nothing but need in Christ save me as I trust alone in him and his work on the cross. That's how we started this life. That's how we move forward. I don't bring anything, but the only thing the value to me is uh, about me is Christ. Because I did show up with 25 cents. And now I'm a billionaire. And I'm not a, a billionaire and 25 cents. I'm just a billionaire. That's all. It's Jesus Christ. And in fact, if I bring my 25 cents to show and I've got my billion, de- billion dollars and my 25 cents, then somehow I'm denying what this is. Get rid of it. In terms of your sense of self, the way you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, Paul is now living it. And here is the deal. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. I'm just coming to the gospel message that, di- that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. I'm coming to that with my sin, my brokenness, the, the hopelessness of my human condition. I'm saying, God, save me. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We dedicate the closing moments to anyone who may be here in the hearing my voice that this is the first time these thoughts have ever really congealed for you that there's nothing to save us but Jesus. There is nothing you can do. There's no work you can perform. There's nothing you can forsake. There's nothing you can give up that is going to save you from your sin, from the penalty of sin, from separation from God. But the blood of Jesus Christ is your reconciliation with God. You can have a relationship with God right now, right where you sit, and then hearing my voice wherever you are. You can know Jesus Christ as your Savior simply by trusting in Him. Heavenly Father, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm trusting in His work alone to save me from my sins, to give me eternal life. The one who died for my sins and rose from the dead is my Savior. And I have no other hope, nothing else, occupies my focus. Nothing else is the object of my faith, not even my own promises, just your son, what he's done for me. Our Father, we thank you for this so great salvation. Strengthen us to live it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.